welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, a good morning to you. It's uh, April Fool's Day, April 1. And uh, I actually toyed with <laughs> pulling a prank. <laughs> but I am, I am the absolute opposite of a prankster. I, I, I find practical jokes cruel. <laughs> I find, you know, I, I, I can't mislead people knowingly or cause them a moment's distress or concern just to get a, <laughs> April Fool's. I, I just can't. I can't. It's it's my makeup. Um, I know a lot of people have no problem with it, and but I, I just, I, I do. My my April Fool's joke was going to be that I was going to very seriously sit here and tell you that over the weekend I'd been really thinking about the world, my place in it, my reaction to the world, and seeing how it was really getting to be a bit much for me, honestly. And um, I was just going to tell you the truth about all that. And, I mean, everything I'm saying now is true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and I realized I could turn it into an April Fool's joke by going through the whole, you know, sort of internal tumult I'm suffering and, and then just say that I'm I'm sorry, but, you know, it's been a good run, but I'm can't do it anymore. Would that have been a good April Fools? If then I said April Fools, would I would I have drawn it out and waited for people to write in? I'll in now, Tor. Ah, oh, we understand. You take care of yourselves. The, the thing is, is I, w I, I wouldn't have had, I mean, everything would be true except uh, the I'm hanging it up part. <laughs> I'm just, I'm wondering when that will come, where I'll just, I really will say. I actually was having a fantasy walking in the building here today. Because I'd just seen a young man stuffing things into a, his belongings into a black, plastic garbage bag. He also had a like a suitcase of sorts. He was there on Smithfield sort of organizing this stuff. His back was to me. He seemed to be about the same age as my own son and um I just have to tell you, it rips my heart out, the pain in the world. And I do not have the Constitution <laughs> to navigate it. And, and I had heard that as one ages, one gets more, you know, accepting, doesn't react strongly to things that one has no real control of. One understands the limits, and that's not happening for me. <laughs> it's getting worse. Uh, so it, it, it might not be far off that I do sit here one day and say, I can't do this anymore. I even said, but I was thinking as I walked in the door, my fantasy was, well, the only way you're going to be able to escape the pain that you see all around you is to literally go away to some secluded place, you know, live in a, a cabin in the woods, turn everything off, 
that is the fantasy I was having as I went, entered the revolving door and uh, pushed my way in here to this building. So you see, I mean, I'm not far from what my April Fool's joke was going to be. And I was thinking I should have a bumper sticker that I think does apply to me. Empathy kills. You can't imagine the chaos in my head. Well, maybe you can because you probably have it too. But I mean, as I had that fantasy and then was coming up in the elevator, I was thinking, but it has ever, ever been thus. Go anywhere into any time and place in the world and this is what life is and, and all you are saying is that you somehow now can't handle it? Can't handle that you have to live and see people in pain, perfect strangers you don't know, and you can't help? I don't know. You can tell. I'm this close to starting to sob. I'm, I'm really. Uh, my April Fool's joke was not a joke. <laughs> I'm really struggling. I um, I stopped after I'd gotten past him, and I I um, started digging around in my purse, looked for my wallet. I found a twenty-dollar bill. I turned back around, and his back was to me, and I I just sort of gave it to him as he was stuffing more things in his plastic bag and he he looked up at me and I neither of us said a word and then I was thinking he was thinking what is this old white lady doing what, does she think I'm homeless? What assumptions is she making? <laughs> or he's thinking, wow, but no words. And I walked away feeling totally um, not better, maybe worse. Back in the day, if I was having a morning like this, I'd be able to say, well, you know, it's that time of month. <laughs> because I would get very emotional when I had my period, but I don't have periods anymore. I'm just living in this world right now, and I can't. Sorry, I just can't do it. Wow. Well, I got news for you. I'm surprising myself here. I'm sorry. April Fools! I didn't go to the neighborhood playoff school of theater for nothing, you know. No, I'm kidding. I really am. Uh, I'm <laughs> just a wreck. Uh, okay. Let's just... Empathy kills. Empathy kills. Empathy kills. Uh, Lou writes, you are not alone. You reassure me that I am not alone. And that's priceless. This is exactly what these Cretans want good folks to do. Just give up. I won't give them the satisfaction. What a world. What a world. Oh, oh God, I'm sorry, kid. I have a friend tweeting me hanging there. Thanks, sweetie. I don't know what brought this all on today. Oh, I know. It's opening day of another losing pirate season. Oh. 
Starbucks. I'll get it together. Hang on just a little bit with me. I'm sorry. There's that poem every once in a while I ask. I start it and then say, who wrote that? And I never can get beyond the first two lines. And then somebody tells me who wrote it. And then I forget again. And it's just the one scrap of a line. The world is too much with me. one of those English poets, and it's true. Well, this might be a first. I'm going to do an entire show crying uh, for no particular reason other than this is what this world is. This is my reaction to it. It's my honest words worth. I'll forget. Wordsworth, the world is too much with me. So I have, yeah, strong feelings about a lot of stuff in the news. And um, I was not nervous, as I sometimes am, coming in here like, oh, what will I say? What do I talk about? That was not the case today. Um, but all of these things are things that, you know, I, I don't, you know, we don't just take this stuff in, it, it, it stays in us and, and, um, affects us. Some people have a much greater capacity for, I guess it's compartmentalization. That must be it. And I got no compartments. I know this is crazy. It is. And I was thinking also as I came up in the elevator, hey, babe, you better call the therapist because this is not normal. You've got to be able to not go crazy because you see a beautiful young black man sticking clothes into a plastic bag on Smithfield Street. You've got to be stronger. And I can't. Or at least it's escaped me at the moment. Okay, come on. My problem is once I start, it's hard for me to stop, but I will. Okay, so I was looking at uh, today's Pittsburgh paper, and oh, here's something positive to look forward to. And that is, th uh, for those of you who aren't in Pittsburgh, there's a, a special election happening in this area um, tomorrow uh, to fill a seat in our state senate. Uh, the person who was filling it is now, God help us all, a uh, member of the Congress of the United States. And um, those of us who live here in the Pittsburgh area have been subjected, if we I guess listen to broadcast news uh, or watch TV um, to ads, you know, political ads going back and forth between the two candidates. And they have been so extraordinarily depressing because, of course, of their ugly, ugly nastiness. And I have a feeling if I were to meet either of these two candidates, they're fine people, but our, the world that they have entered, this political world, is, is, is not fine, is not fine. It is so ugly so that 
the Democratic candidate, uh, Pam Iavino, her name is, <laughs> is described in her opponent's ads as, I mean, it, it's like, she's like a, a swamp creature come to, uh, you know, steal your children in the night. Uh, she sure as hell's going to take your jobs and, and uh, bring communism to our shores. And she doesn't give a damn about you. You know, never mind that she is a, has an impressive as heck resume, a decorated member of the United States military. <laughs> I, and the Republican, used to head the Repub county Republican Party, is a, is a classic American success story. He's an immigrant. I believe from India, yeah. built an extremely successful business, and uh, you know to hear the ads uh, against him, you would think he too was the next incarnation of uh, of Satan. This is for any person who has not completely lost their humanity. <coughs> this is so extraordinarily depressing and saddening. I can't wait till at least I'll be free of those two commercials. I obviously hope that she wins. It's not uh, the, the people, the guy that they're running to replace is a Republican. So it is a Republican district. But I do um, hope that, given the times we are in, that she pulls one out. If she does, it would at least get Democrats into conceivably striking distance of flipping the state Senate uh, in 2020. But all of that, of course, is getting ahead of ourselves, which is what we do with alarming regularity. And odds are, you know, Wednesday I'll be here saying that, in fact, she didn't win. I don't know. If you're in that district, uh, these special elections have such low turnout. Please, 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 please vote. And grab everybody you can and have them vote. Okay. Thank you. Another story I saw that just made my blood ran, run cold is this story out of North South Carolina. I guess it is some poor girl jumping in a car because she had called an Uber and met the description. She jumped in. Her body was found later. I did that right out here, right out <laughs> in front of this building. I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. I mean, her, what's sad about what happened to her is that she got in the car of a killer. I once jumped in the backseat of a guy who happened to stop here in front of the building, and he turned around and said, <laughs> at least he was hip. He he knew why I jumped in his car. Um, he, he turned around and he said, I'm not an Uber. <coughs> and I, I said, oh, excuse me, and shut the door and embarrassedly uh, backed off. But I bet that happens a lot. Milton writes, you're not alone. Your empathy is our hope. Mm. A lot of good it does us. Each day we all laugh and we scream in angst together. It's not a bad thing that we spend, don't get me started again, that we spend a morning crying together. We all cry with you for as many mornings as you need. Thank you. Ah, 
here's the whole poem. The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan, suckled in a creed, outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, the whole poem, he was feeling the same way. William Wordsworth, centuries ago, was feeling (laughs) the same way. It's what I say. He, too, suffering from empathy. Do you remember this story from a few years ago that sort of gave you hope that there are good people, I mean good capitalists in the world? Do you remember this story of this guy who had a a company um, in Seattle? And it it was a relatively small company, although it would be considered a small business, although he was doing very well. And he processed, um, the company like processed uh, credit card payments or something. It had something to do with financial transactions for small businesses. And it was a company that he and his brother had founded together. And um, I think they had about hundred or so employees and as you know Seattle uh, the cost of living is sky high there because of the big capitalists moving in and he realized that um, his employees really many of them most of them perhaps couldn't really live on what he was able to pay them. And he calculated what he thought would be the income you would need living in Seattle to live a good life. You know, not an extravagant life, just to to live. And he came up with uh, $70,000 and he called all his employees together and he told them that he'd had this i guess moment of empathy and realized that he couldn't sleep very well at night and so he was raising everybody up to 70,000 immediately That was the minimum at his company. And um, in order to fund it, he was dropping his salary down to 70000 
and the over one million he was at the time paying himself would help fund this increase for his employees. Well, you know, the internet went wild, media went wild, capitalists went wild, this will not hold, they said, you can't run a company like that. It ain't gonna work. His own brother, the co-founder, was enraged because he, <laughs> he hadn't apparently talked to him about it, which is outrageous, too. And uh, the brother sued him. Some employees left, the ones who were making probably 80000 <laughs> They left because all of a sudden they felt undervalued. Well, if the receptionist is making 70 and I'm only making 80, then I'm out of here. So there was that. And there was quite a bit of tumult. But Nicholas Kristof did something which I'm very grateful for. He went back to take a look. So this was four years ago that that happened. And how's he doing? How are they doing now? So here's the upshot of that feel-good story that was sort of, and, and it's not like it created a, uh, you know, all these other companies saying, wow, let's do that too. Uh, no. <laughs> that, of course, didn't happen. However, here has, is, has, this has happened in the last four years. Businesses for business has for his company surged. They processed more than double the claims or payments or whatever they do than they had four years before, before the announcement. They doubled. And he started, when he made the announcement, he had 120 employees. He now has 200 employees, none making less than $70,000. For the people who jumped because they were feeling undervalued when he did that, other people jumped over to him, including people who were making tons of money a woman named Tammy Kroll, who was an executive at Yahoo, took an 80% cut in pay to become his COO. And she says, money does not make you happy. I found that out. It doesn't make you a better person. Um, you know, a little biographical tidbit about him that I is shared in this update by Kristoff. Uh, this guy and his brother grew up in uh, rural Idaho in a rather strange, uh, isolated uh, world, uh, intensely Christian family, like I would think sort of lunatic Christian family, in that he, he said, it sounds like they were homeschooled, he would spend three hours a day listening to Rush Limbaugh, and two hours a day at least listening to scripture, uh, memorizing scripture. And thank God what took for him was not Limbaugh, but the meanings in the scripture. He took that to heart. He's not very religious anymore, but he became a true Christian. I should say his name, by the way, is Dan Price. And um, about a year ago, his employees surprised him 
they marched him out to the parking lot and presented him with a brand new Tesla that they had all chipped in to buy him to replace the apparently ratty old car <laughs> that he'd been driving for some time. And Nicholas Kristof says in this piece, here is proof that capitalism can have a heart. Gigi writes, well, Lou stole my words. Well, thank you. I was about to say you're not alone. And truly you are not. My friends and family are amazed at how despondent we feel about the state of the world. We keep waiting for the upswing. Obviously, the release of the Mueller report deflated a lot of hopes. Maybe there's such a thing as post-Mueller report syndrome, but hey, it's Buck's opening day, and even if it is a losing season, it's baseball. I've lost. Do you know... I, this is how bad I've gotten, and so something's wrong. I do have to, I wonder if there's a pill for <laughs> to help me out of whatever I'm heading into here. Um, I was unable, I usually love, you know, March Madness, and especially this final, you know, eight, four, two, one. I love it. I couldn't watch it this year. And you know, here's how bad I've gotten. I couldn't watch one team lose. <laughs> I'm so, you know, it's so obvious that for all those kids on the court, this is the hugest moment in their lives. And the joy that you see with the winners, you know, like, why don't I go with there? Okay, I'm following the winners. I'm feeling joy. No, I'm always slinking off the court, sitting with a towel over my head, sobbing with the losers. And I thought, you know what? You can't watch. That's it, lady. You can't watch. <laughs> so... I mean, I have lost, I am losing my ability to deal with reality. I really am with the harshness of it. And, and that's, um, that's scary. I mean, I, whatever. So speaking of uh, capitalism with a heart, <laughs> a joke. There is also an opinion piece, an interesting piece that I read today by uh, David Leonhardt. Uh, this is in the New York Times op-ed section, and he uh, informs me about a, um, an immigrant to this country who became a CEO, very successful man. His name is Peter Ceausescu. He was Romanian. His story is one of unbelievable suffering, separated from his parents, uh, uh, stuck in Transylvania with the commies, um, unable to, uh, he was actually, his parents were stuck in the States, they were separated and they couldn't, and then the Romanian government actually tried to um, pressure his father into being a spy for Romania for in to get his sons out. If you do this for us, we'll let your boys go. And the father did an amazingly courageous thing. He he said no and went to the FBI. And the FBI said, go public with this. And it embarrassed the Romanians and blah, blah, blah. And President Eisenhower stepped in and there was a prisoner exchange right there at JFK in uh, New York. And that's how this Peter 
Georgescu uh, came to the United States as a teenager as part of a prisoner exchange done at the highest levels of the U.S. government. And to that kid, America was something extraordinary. Communism was something so brutal. And yet, this is a guy who has been warning for decades that capitalism is committing suicide. So here is somebody who saw who capitalism worked for him and he understood it to be a certain thing that was supposed to work pretty much for everybody. And then he looked around him and he saw that, wait a minute, it had changed. He feels it changed in the 70s when it went from being what he called stakeholder capitalism. He said that's pretty much what we had. Stakeholder capitalism recognizes that we're all in this game together so that the guys who own the means of production understand that the guys who use those means, the laborers and the owners, are in it together, can't be successful without one another. And they understood that customers were part of the deal. You do well by them. And you understood that shareholders were also part, but that every one of those four parts had to be happy in order for capitalism to really work. The, the owner the laborer, the shareholder, the customer. And that is the capitalism that he came to, he felt, in the 1950s. And that is how he understood the difference between America and the communists of Romania. And then he saw it start to come apart. And he said, all of a sudden, the customer didn't matter, the laborers didn't matter, the only thing that mattered were the shareholders. Not the stakeholders, the shareholders. And he, apparently, I don't know that I've seen them, he says he has written all kinds of op-eds calling on the idiot capitalists in this country to wake up. He says this, I have seen many societies fall apart. And this could happen here. We are not that far off. And he has company in Warren Buffett who says this. Yeah, there's class warfare, all right. And it's my class, the rich class, that's making war. And we're winning. That from Warren Buffett. And I know there are other, others who have tried to sound the alarm, but I don't think, you see, here's where I, I, f I feel so little hope. I know most of these guys just laugh. They laugh at the guy in Seattle. And if you tell them, but you know what, his company's more successful now. They see a company like Costco that is also still working with the stakeholder uh, kind of capitalism. They see the success of a Costco, but they say, you know how much more money they could be making? 
been reading a lot about the epitome of these vile kinds of capitalists we have now, this Sackler family, the ones who brought the opioid epidemic upon us, the uh, owners of uh, Purdue Pharma. They are now under assault, thank God, a little late, by the feds, by states, by counties, by cities, everybody suing them. They have made millions upon millions of dollars while over 200,000 people in the United States have died because of their pill, Oxycontin. And the New York Times has a piece today Headline, as opioid epidemic grew, Sackler family spied a new market. Yeah. When they saw all the deaths, they thought, hey, we got to get in to meds that will, yeah, stop either the deaths or the, dis or the addiction. And they found this in a document. These are part of all the discovery that's going on now with all these suits. Here is one. This was in the... This is a business memo. Pain treatment and addiction are naturally linked. We could make money at both ends as an end-to-end -end pain provider. You know, you probably know the Sackler family, by the way, their their name is all over all these universities, over um, they, I think there's part of the Met, Metropolitan Museum, there's the, I believe they're in the Louvre, uh, the British Museum. I mean, they, with their money, have been exceedingly philanthropic uh, to all of these high-end kinds of uh, charitable organizations. And only now are some of them, there's sort of a, now it's becoming a domino effect. Um, they're refusing to take money from them. Blood money. And this wing of the Louvre brought to you by 200,000 dead Americans. And here, this lovely new building at Columbia University brought to you by... 200,000 dead Americans. Roger writes, I get exactly what you're saying. I believe I was watching a PBS show last night about teenage girls and young women going on their very first outbound camping trip for women in 1965. They had a reunion a few years ago. Listening to their stories about that experience moved me so much that I was crying and thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? There was nothing wrong with you. Oh, I guess that's what you're telling me. I have to believe that there's nothing wrong with empathy. What's wrong with those people, the people who don't feel. That may sound mean to some, but where the hell is their compassion? Being emotional is not a sign of weakness. And for your information, the Pirates finished 82-79 last year. Oh, yes, I knew. It was a winning season. Um... Uh, somebody has sent me a poem, which they say they read almost every day to keep them from going crazy. Uh, this is Joseph Campbell. That's not a, it's not a poem, is it? Oh, here, what is it? It's awfully s small. Here, I'll get it. The warrior's approach is to say yes to life. Yes 
to it all. Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. When we talk about settling the world's problems, we're barking up the wrong tree. The world is perfect. It's a mess. It has always been a mess. We're not going to change it. Our job is to straighten out our own lives. I get it, but... Well, it comes... Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been trying to remember um, something I had read, and I think I did share with you, that happiness... Um, happiness is um, you know for some is easier like my both my mother and my sister are by nature happy people my mother especially and um, how the hell I came from her I don't know uh, but for those of us for whom it is not a natural state instead our natural state is melancholy and concern and you know whatever yeah it just makes it harder for us to live like the words of that Joseph Campbell was sharing with us for some people that's not so hard to do for others it's very hard but I read and I keep trying to tell myself gotta try just try harder that happiness is a, a choice and that it's a skill. And it's a skill I'm not very good at. And it's a choice I find sometimes so difficult. It seems selfish. And I suspect I'm wrong about that. I don't know. So I already told you about one Romanian immigrant. I want to... <laughs> <laughs> I got two Romanian immigrants here. I do today. Just so happens. One uh, is an obit. I, I intended to. I haven't done an obit in a long time, right? Maybe that's my problem. Um. And this is an obit that I, gu I guess I first read about this uh, man's passing in the in the local paper because he lived here. And then I was reminded of his passing uh, this weekend uh, when the Wall Street Journal on Saturday did a very big uh, and special almost quarter page, is a quarter page, on him. And I read that and I thought, geez, Okay, well, you know, isn't that classic? Well, I saw the old bit in the local paper. Yeah, he seemed like a really big guy, but, you know. And then you see it in the national paper and think, oh, well, I guess that's important. So I'm embarrassed to say that, but here he, here he is, and I want to give the guy his due. I, his name is Egon Ballas. He was born in 1922 in Romania. And um, that wasn't a good place to be in 1922 because he was a Jew. He was born into a Jewish family. And um, he saw the Nazis rise up. He watched as the horror began. He went looking, because he was an empathetic person, he went looking to try to understand what the hell is with this world. And he decided, I'll tell you what's wrong with it, it's capitalism. He heard a lot of people his age, teenagers, saying, you know, 
It's the evils of capitalism. It breeds oppression, inequality, greed, exploitation, hatreds of all kinds. It breeds nationalism, racism, anti-Semitism. That's a quote from a memoir he wrote many, many, many years later. He joined the communist underground and he got captured. He was held in Hungary. He was brutally (laughs) beaten and tortured. Somehow he survived. The war ends. And he returned to his hometown to, of course, find his family gone. Smoke up an Auschwitz chimney. He married an Auschwitz survivor. And he was very, very excited to actually help the new government in his country, Romania, this new communist government, to build a just society on the ashes of the horror he had lived. He earned a degree in economics. He joined the government. He was sent to London in 1948 as a diplomat for the new government of Romania. In London, he just loved going to Hyde Park and and listening at the speaker's corner to all of these people screaming back and forth about what they felt and no soldiers coming and taking them away nobody he 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 was just smitten with the freedom he saw well he soon found out that free speech did not exist in Romania because he started speaking freely to his superiors in the government. And he told them that, you know what, Um, Britain is not going to, uh, the workers, the people I meet here, there's not going to be some communist revolution happening here. I got to tell you, they're too free. They wouldn't even comprehend really it. They're unionists perhaps, but they're not communist and the government his government became furious and accused him of bourgeois objectivism he was summoned back to uh, Romania somehow he hung on in the government and he became the head of economic affairs of their foreign ministry but he kept speaking frankly And uh, in 1952, he was accused yet again of a great sin of right-wing deviation. I just love these, these commie terms. You have been accused of bourgeois objectivism. You have been accused of right-wing deviation. This time, though, they threw him out of the government and threw him into a cell. And he was kept in solitary confinement for over two years to keep himself from going mad. He played Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in his head over and over and over again. He made a chess board and chess set out of toilet paper and bread crumbs. He befriended a rat. And then they let him go. 
and he became an economics professor, and he began to search for ways to improve the functioning of socialist economies, probably opening it up a little bit, making them a little bit more like what he saw in London. And all hell broke loose. I mean, this is a guy who never learned, right? He then was branded a bourgeois, a bourgeois element alien to the party and the working class, and was booted out of his faculty position, and he just went back to doing something he'd always loved, which was studying math. Some institute hired him to calculate more efficient way of harvesting trees. And it turns out that this guy's head was just brilliant. I don't understand this stuff, but it says he made his name on fiendishly complicated problems, mixing variables such as inputs of energy with either-or questions such as whether you would build a road there or build a road here. And by the time he... He finally won permission to get the hell out of Romania to emigrate. His international reputation was strong enough that he was offered academic jobs all over the place. One of those offers was Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, USA, and he took that one. He played tennis into his 95th year, never lost his interest in social justice. Though he says his priorities changed. And I'm just going to throw this out here because he wrote this. He who had lost his freedom so many times. He who had seen his family lose their lives because of governmental policy. He wrote this, when it comes to choosing between freedom and equality, my bias is in favor of freedom. I don't think that's a question that would occur to any of us because our lives have not been as fraught as Aegon Balas's life was. His bias was in favor of freedom. I know, I know when I thought, when I read that, but I want both. Wait a minute, I'm going to pick between equality and freedom? I guess he had to many times. And he doesn't say I would pick freedom. He says his bias is in favor of freedom and I guess spoken as a man who had lost his. Anyway, he... Um, considered just, I guess, an extraordinarily brilliant mathematician. And he lived here in freedom most of his life. So I will end on that. I completely forgot to get into Joe Biden's problems, but you know what? We'll do that tomorrow with Susan. I mean, she and I usually are in agreement on these things, but um, it might make for a livelier uh, conversation. also want to talk about uh, Trump's latest craziness of uh, sealing the border, our southern border. Uh, Whatever. Okay. Be strong, she said mostly to herself. And go box! Or whatever that's worth. Okay?
See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.